0: Hey, everyone, it's your favorite new co-host Bilal Hankins here for a quick detour before we start the show. This spring will bring our 10th season of Elixir Wizards, and we are so thankful to you all for tuning in each and every week. We would love to make the show even better for you, so we created a short listener survey to get some feedback. If you could do us a quick favor and take two minutes to complete the survey, we promise to come back bigger and better in our 10th season. To take the survey, just click the link in our show notes for this episode or visit smr.tl slash survey 2022. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to help us understand how we can create an even better podcast for you. And now on with the show.
1: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Owen Bickford, and I'll be your host. I'm joined today by my co-host, Dan Ivovich. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well, Owen. Always. (laughs) So this season's theme is Parsing the Particulars, and today we're joined by our recurring special guest, Chris Miller from Corvus Insurance. We're diving into the particulars of crafting a programming language. So how are you, Chris? I'm doing well. Great to be here. Awesome. Glad to have you back. I was just checking the podcast page. I saw that the, you were previously on the podcast May of 2021. So just over a year ago, year and a half almost. So curious, you know, of course we can link back to that episode, but if you want to give us a kind of a, a refresher on who is Chris Miller, where you come from, where you're at.
0: Uh, yeah, sure. I'm I'm originally from Baltimore. Uh, so... Baltimore is very close to my heart. I got my degree in mathematics, a minor in Chinese. I'm really passionate about teaching math and computer science related topics. For a day job, I work at Corvus Insurance, which uh, we use Elm and Elixir to build out
1: the world-class insurance platform. I guess Chris Miller in a nutshell. <laughs> right. Awesome. And so you mentioned Corvus. So is Corvus like, selling its own insurance or is it kind of a platform that sells multiple
0: insurance options? Uh, So we're at MGA, uh, so we kind of sell insurance on behalf of multiple risk-class partners, but we primarily work with uh, cyber insurance and technology errors and emissions. Awesome.
1: It's that time of year, open enrollment. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sure insurance is on the top of just about everybody's mind if you're you're in a place to be insured. Awesome. So the topic today is crafting programming languages. I hear you have some thoughts, I guess, to kind of get started. What excites you about the internals of a programming language? So I think
0: for me, it's not necessarily programming languages per se, but it's just more about languages in general. I like study Chinese, German, Spanish, Hebrew, C, C++, Haskell, you name it, I've probably looked at it, APL. And it's really just the whole idea that when you learn a new language, you're learning a new way of thinking. And I'm just fascinated with new ways of looking at the world and new
2: ways of thinking. That's really neat. I guess I kind of wonder, with your background in math, doesn't that feel in conflict? Like I don't think there's a whole lot of new math, right?
0: There's math coming out every day. Um, there's tons of new math. I, I'd say that uh, mathematics is actually a language in itself and I, I call it the language of abstraction, the universal language. And learning new areas of mathematics really is just like learning new languages. Like when you look at linear algebra, you're talking about vector spaces and uh, linear transformations, right? But then you can take those same type of concepts and apply them to other areas uh, like group theory. You're talking about groups and then group transformations homomorphisms so it's just like mathcon is very like synonymous with this whole language oriented idea mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: yeah i can i can really relate to to that in some degrees you know i I remember distinctly the moment when I realized I could start learning computer languages and not foreign languages, and quickly put all of my energy into computer languages and not foreign (laughs) languages. But then I also have a distinct memory in college toward, you know, nearing the end when I finally had seemed to have taken enough classes to make a lot of things that I'd struggled with prior click and just kind of all fall into place. And uh, I think that kind of understanding of how things work, you know, at least a little below the surface is really helpful anytime you're learning something new to have uh, that kind of deeper
1: context. Yeah, absolutely. How far back do these interests go? Were you like studying Chinese in like grade school or like uh, algebra stuff back then? Or like what's the progression here? So I guess uh, the language progression,
0: I kind of started with uh, Spanish and Hebrew and, and Greek. And that was back like in middle and high school. My dad taught me C++ when I was like six or seven, but I wasn't as like, you know, gung-ho on programming at that time. I didn't really see it in that way. Um, But my curiosity for, I guess, just exploring other cultures and other modes of thinking and ways of thinking has been there since I was very young.
1: Awesome. So I'm kind of curious, as we're thinking about programming languages... If let's say you're a, you're a coder, could be a new coder or someone who's you know maybe mid or even senior, and you're not writing a programming language yourself, what's interesting about how languages are crafted in the first place, either specifically with programming programming languages or spoken languages?
0: Yeah, so I think um, inherently language is about uh, communicating ideas, and communicating ideas is like abstraction essentially, right? when you think about what a programming language is, is it's a general abstraction over computation and computation like built for some machine, like usually assembly or something of that nature. I'm not a hardware guy, so I'm not gonna get into the details of that, Uh, but we're abstracting over binary bits when we're thinking about programming languages at a high level. And, you know, for your everyday engineer, we use generic programming languages to build other things, right? Like web applications. Um, that's what I'm familiar with. And essentially we're building up web applications and we could think and requests and responses. But what ends up happening is we want to abstract over that a little bit. We have the bits and the bytes of the web domain, right? So we end up actually building up this language that abstracts over like the plumbing for requests and response handling. So I would say that everyone's building a language it's just only certain people are
2: actively talking about it interesting that's a good refresher to you know like the the concept of domain specific language and i remember that was like a you know a, a big thing in early ruby days for me and it doesn't come up a whole lot anymore you know and i think in in some regards People have seen themselves paint themselves into corners by coming up with a language that then they have to maintain because you know, every every abstraction comes with a maintenance cost. But yeah, the, the layered approach is really interesting in, in thinking about it from abstracting all the way down to assembly or to the the actual binary commands, uh, the, the instruction set codes that are running on a processor. And of course, this abstraction goes in the other direction too. We spend a lot of a lot of computer hardware is designed to deal with the weird abstractions we come up with. Uh, In order to make processes go fast, we do all sorts of things for branch prediction and hyper-threading and all these things to deal with the fact that our abstractions are not perfect and there's some clunkiness that goes with that. Of course, and and compilers deal with that a lot too. Unfurling loops and all sorts of things to make what our abstractions come up with go even faster. It's really interesting.
1: I'm curious, has anyone here ever written some raw assembly code? I have. I've done it like one time for a class, but
0: not sudden of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, in an academic I've setting, d- I've done it. Okay, I've heard it described. I've not ever heard that and said, "You know what? Today I write assembly code." So it just hasn't happened for me yet. Maybe never will. Well, and I,
2: I think to Chris's point about understanding the abstractions and what you're trying to communicate, there is value in you know at least academically looking at what that looks like, how it has to work. It gives you an appreciation for the abstractions you have above it and helps you understand a little bit more as to you know, why things are the way they are because you know, every, everything is built on the layer below and uh, has to deal with some of those decisions.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially nowadays. Working at a cyber insurance company, thinking about security all the time is always on my forefront. So when you layer all these abstractions on top of each other, you know, sometimes there's a hole through those abstractions that becomes a security <laughs> vulnerability.
1: Yeah, um, like if
2: you decide to copy a string and not say how long you expect it to be, you know, yeah.
1: the the classic example. So uh, speaking of DSLs or domain-specific language is there? Is that a, a part of what of the work you're doing at Corvus, Kind of crafting a DSL for the specific problems you're working with in that domain.
0: Oh yeah, uh, you can ask anyone. I any one of my coworkers. Like what's Chris always talking about?
1: We got to build some DSLs, man, for the
0: insurance. Like let's let's talk about what a court request is, stuff like that. Language-oriented programming is something I'm very much so interested in you think about sort of the different approaches you hear a lot about top-down programming, bottom-up programming. You know, top-down programming is really difficult because you have to kind of have an expert there that knows the space fairly well and everything involves for you to come up with a system and go down. Bottom-up is difficult for a different reason. Uh, You're coming from a set of utilities and trying to just slowly build up a system over time. But then you have this other thing, which I recently found out, was a mythology in this stack. middle out programming. You, you start in the middle, you capture like something about your domain space um, and you build a DSL. you build your application on top of that DSO, and then you implement that DSO using your utility. It allows for ultimate flexibility in any software project you're building. It's like, oh, you need this new concept, add it to your DSL really work on your DSL first before you build your application. It kind of goes back to the building library uh, mythology that people kind of have, but it takes that a step further.
1: Now, in, in Elixir land, when I hear DSL, I think from talks that I've watched over the years, the first thing that comes to mind is macros, you know, and Phoenix, that kind of thing. But I'm also kind of thinking of some recent project work I've done Building an application, kind of in the middle of two different systems and trying to connect them together. So I'm kind of wondering if that is in the realm of the middle out approach. Does that sound right to you, Dan? (laughs) Based on what you know about the client project? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think you could interpret
2: it that way, and you know, the middle can be wherever you put it to some degree. You know, I think there's the the classic example of you know, what are all the nouns in my system? What are the events that go between them? Kind of your your typical domain driven. Type of assessments, um, you know. I, I think one of the things that really that I caught on to with with Phoenix and uh, and Ecto specifically was, you know, that the change sets and contexts and it kind of does give you that boundary to say these are the important nouns I care about, and I'm going to define an interface on how I want to interact with those, and then you do separate your presentation, whatever that may be, and it could be many different presentations from the actual implementation, be that. Flat file storage, you know, some sort of repository, uh, something over an HTTP connection, and so you you get that. That is a level of abstraction that we put even just within its own app. It doesn't have to be, at an even larger scope, although it often is.
1: Yeah. So I think the example I'm thinking about is a behavior that I've defined for a particular type of work that needs to be done. So it lists, you know, a bunch of callbacks. Some of them are optional. Provides some other some. It does have like a using macro and that kind of thing. So is that kind of similar to what how you're defining if you're writing this in Elixir, is that kind of similar to how you're defining DSLs at Corvus? Is there something more specific you're able to kind of dig into there or without you know spilling the beans?
0: Yeah, no, I I think um Dan's example of like Ecto for, for instance is like a perfect example of like sort of this middle out like programming, um, where you kind of start with your yeah, your, your nouns and your relationships between those things and really focus on that without worrying about the underlying details. I don't necessarily... There's no beans to spill necessarily. I just <laughs> don't want to spend here talking about insurance. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> oh,
2: man. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Well, it does kind of make me think too, you know, when you do learn other languages whether that's a programming language or a, a spoken language, you know, you often do start with like, what are the keywords? what are the nouns? What are the things I need to communicate about what's around me? Because like you said, Chris, like the whole point is an abstraction to uh, convey meaning to somebody. And often the, you know, what is this thing is is the most important part of that communication. and the the adjectives around it, the you know, those are often less important to convey, you know, the, the meaning behind something. It adds nuance and is important, but it can be a secondary step. And, you know, what it is and what you can do to it, what is acceptable is, you know, probably the the first thing that you really need to worry about in most cases.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um Yeah, I was just reading a paper from some company. I can't um I'll I'll link it later uh, here, but it was just talking about language-oriented programming or middle-out programming. This was first Uh, coined middle out programming, but they have hence turned it into language oriented programming. So you you read a lot about this in the racket space, but using macros or DSLs to essentially build out your applications. And it's just a fascinating way of thinking about like software. And then when you relate that back to like actual natural language and going into like user research, like... How do you build software it's the software doesn't happen in a vacuum with the engineers it's like you have to talk to the people that actually use it or need it and you have to use their language and oftentimes when you want to build new features like you have to, to figure out okay what is that concept in my general programming language so you're doing this translation and it makes like coding anything very difficult because it's like i need to constantly translate from what this person's domain is to like my code. And then if, if you leave, well, maybe your translation wasn't necessarily how the next engineer would translate it. So there's like this, ugh, I don't know what you call that. This this friction that that happens, but if oh, you it's just definitely friction. <laughs> take the time to build a language, a shared meaning that is as close as possible to the domain. Well, your next engineer doesn't really have to think about how to translate because you've already done that.
2: Well, and I think that's an important point too. And it's a conversation I have with clients pretty often around, you know, Oh, we want to change this label on this page. And it's like, okay, like, yes, changing that label is trivial, but it, it, it is in your benefit for us to change that everywhere, all down the stack. So that if we're going to change what that noun is, it's changed everywhere because otherwise, you know, in six months, and that's optimistic. Someone's going to come and, and look at it and be like, I don't understand why these are different. And, you know, that, like you said, that meaning, that language, that reason, that translation will be gone potentially or forgotten. And uh, now you're in for a world of uh, lack of understanding, which leads to errors and mistakes and regressions and uh, a whole bunch of bad bad news.
1: All of this talk of nouns and domains, it's just reminding me of domain driven design and like how I've taken some kind of confusing projects where the requirements aren't really clear and kind of started to ask questions like about the domain and kind of applying those terms to the way that we name our modules and functions so that it might even make sense like the code might even make sense to a non-programmer you know from that company so yeah that that's a very very useful way of kind of thinking through problems and I think there's a lot of overlap between these concepts of you know, domain-driven design and middle-out language-based design as well. Well, I'm curious, have you attempted to write your own programming language? Uh, yeah, so I had to do it as
0: like an exam for a class, and that was like a kind of subset of OCaml like compiler, and then I started getting curious about what I could do, like outside of the traditional means, I'm really passionate about teaching other people how to code. And I wanted to explore, like, how could I build an like educational language? This is still very much so like in the first couple of like commits or so. So this is like highly experimental. But essentially, I wanted a language that would ask the user questions to get answers about the types and the relationships between those types and it would write the program for the user. And then actually the user can go back through and look at what questions correlate to what code essentially becoming like this teaching language based on inquiry, because when I'm writing a piece of code or when I'm thinking about like writing some software, it goes back to like, what the heck is this thing? Like, what is this language? And it's always a series of questions like, oh, what are your main things involved? how are they involved with each other? Like, are there numbers involved? What calculations are there? Like, and I'm still working on like this as I'm talking about it, but it's like building this inquiry tree. And then that inquiry tree can be transformed into a program tree with answers.
2: It is something that I'm kind of observing about you, Chris is just like your passion for asking questions and kind of like figuring out what's going on. And and I think you know, such an important skill in, well, in life, but particularly in this industry, is you know that ability to ask good questions. Um, and we say ask good questions, and I think sometimes we cause uh, intimidation by saying that because most questions are good questions. Probably all questions are good questions, uh, especially when you're trying to decompose a problem that you must get to shared understanding on. And I think anything that we can do to encourage everyone we're working with to ask questions is is important. Uh, and I really like your approach to. Making the questions be more about the abstraction than about the implementation or the technology or the language or the the whatever is you know kind of really drawing that boundary and saying let's talk about the domain. Uh, and I'm curious when you are breaking down a domain with a team or you know whomever you're working with, do you have any like tips or? or pitfalls that you've seen when, you know, sometimes engineers will start to be like, oh, well, that sounds like this table or this database or this thing, which is really, I would argue, then starting to break your abstraction because now you're talking about a specific thing and not the domain that you're trying to, to, to build around. Have you seen that? Do you have tips around kind of staying within a boundary? Where other engineers go towards
0: implementation, I go the other way, which is a, a separate problem. I go like, wait, what is this really? Like, I'm, I'm like, what concept is this? How can we abstract this? Like, I I'm like, can we build the, can we build the thing that builds the thing that builds the thing before I'm ever thinking about actually building the thing
1: and it's mm-hmm. a problem.
0: So <laughs> when I'm talking to users, right. Um, and we're talking about like something very specific, like they're trying to I'm not trying to talk about insurance, <laughs>
2: Let's say speak, we're, speak we're, to what you know,
0: Chris. It's all right. good. Let, okay, <laughs> I, I mean, no, no, I really don't want to talk about insurance. Let's say we're talking tic tac toe, right? So tic tac toe is simple. Sure. You're, you're you're a user. You're trying to like place these these objects on this this grid, right? Do you, you want to play tic tac toe? It's very simple. Now, we could just say, all right, we spin up a grid that's a three by three thing and be done with it. But that's not the way I solve problems. That's not the way I tackle these things. I'm like, okay, well, why do you want to like, how do you want to place things on this grid? Like, do we even need a grid? What's a grid? Like, I'm always asking like what things are. If I, if I'm not sure of what someone is saying, I'm, I'm asking almost immediately, even if I already asked that question before, which is insane to some people. It's like, I have to be sure I know it is, what you're talking about. So I have to ask the follow-up questions. And I think that's like the biggest thing. It's like, if you have any inkling that you don't know what something is, you need to ask if something else is brought up and you asking about that thing, you need to ask what that other thing is. You have to take your trails all the way down and you have to do this within reason, which is why I'm saying I, I, I go way too far on this side of things. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. cause you can't abstract everything <laughs> or maybe. You can't.
2: Well, I think it's <laughs> something I was thinking when you were saying that there too, is I think some of the, you know some of the really strong engineers that I've worked with and and Owen included always take the time to restate their understanding of what they've been told in slightly different words. Because that's a really good way to expose, you know, something leaky in your abstraction. You know, if you say, well, okay, what I heard is or what I understand this to be is this thing in, you know, as much different words as you can without, you know, continuing to confuse the taxonomy. But you know, explain it again you know in some different way to make sure that we all agree that either way we're talking about the same thing and i think that's it is related to what you're saying i don't know that i've ever worked with anyone who had the the problem where they go so far into the why but i do like the the philosophical part of what is a grid uh i think that one might <laughs> stick with me for a little bit after this call what
1: is a grid yeah. dan
2: <laughs> it's so, a nested array is I, it
1: uh maybe could be could be a it map. Could be a could it a could, be a, could be a function. It could be a function could be. Yeah, yeah. To your point, Dan, like that's I think that's a skill I kind of picked up uh, during my days in customer service. Of you know, I, I was doing technical support, so a lot of times I'd have someone. That, you know, it's very different from like a client call, right? Like you'll get through this kind of like meandering kind of explanation of what's happening. It's kind of like a big word problem where some of this is relevant, some of it is not. And at the end of that, kind of, sometimes it's venting, sometimes it's, like, just exasperation, or, or, or whatever it is. Like, you need to kind of restate what you're hearing in order to make sure that you're on the same page before you get started trying to actually solve the problem. Because a lot of times you'll, if you say, all right, I got this, without, like, checking, you know, checking yourself, you might wreck yourself, <laughs> So you might go in, you know, trying to solve the wrong thing and then wasting, if you're on a call with a customer, it could be half an hour or more and that's bad. Or if you're an engineer, this could be very expensive because you might spend days or weeks working on the wrong, wrong problem. So that's is something I'll recap, not only at the end of the call, but like throughout and also keep asking why. The why is the one that I try to ask more than I used to because I find that very useful as well, like are we sure we really need to do this? Or, or why is this really a problem for you? Because that will uncover some additional problems that weren't quite part of the initial scope.
0: Yeah, like, I guess another tip. Contextual inquiry is something that I do a lot. So I watch the users use the software, and like I'll ask them, why did you do that? And one thing I've noticed with other engineers is where they'll they'll look at the behavior that, happening in the software but not really question what the intended like effect is forget about what the software is doing forget about what i've built for you what it is what is it that you're actually trying to do like if there wasn't a computer system that represented this model how would you do it like pencil and paper and you can catch a lot of like abstraction leaks that way just like Talk to me like I'm five, walk me through the steps uh, and, you know, don't skip anything and, and bring it all back to f- like pen and paper, whatever process it is you're trying to, to map. In. And doing it that way, you really do start figuring out why people are doing certain actions in your software, but also why people are doing certain things in general. Mm
2: hmm. Yeah, I think we like to throw around the terms, you know, business logic and you know, business value and you know, what's the use case? And it's it's a lot of ways of kind of skirting around what you're saying, which is, hey, can I just sit with you and understand what it is that you do so that I can build something that adds value to that, rather than influence the same process in a probably worse way that you're going to be frustrated about. It's an easy misstep to take when you're building software, and uh, I think you know our processes have to support figuring out kind of those details. I feel a little obligated to pull us back to Elixir, at least for a second <laughs> here, and just say, you know, you've you've experienced a lot of different languages from, uh, you know, spoken uh, <laughs> programming and uh, abstraction. I'm just curious, you know, what do you think in particular has influenced, you know, or what about how you write Elixir, maybe, is like most influenced by your exposure to all these languages? Do you do you think you do Elixir in a different way because of all this experience?
0: I think the time I spent looking at how like Haskell and and that community built out software is really kind of re those like functional those core functional principles that Elixir sits on top on top of. Um so when I'm writing Elixir code, I'm I'm thinking about like how can I write libraries to to do the things that I'm actually trying to do first? And yeah, that's taken me like Miles, I would say. I also say the time I've touched Lisp and and thinking about Lisp and macros and DSLs has has allowed me to see Elixir as a Lisp. I remember when I was uh, interviewing Jose on Code Next Door, a YouTube channel, and he was saying like, yeah, I got a lot of inspiration from Lisp. I did not see it at the time. I was like, I don't know what he's talking about. But now I do. It's just just like the heavy macro influence, the metaprogramming, it, it really just allows you to go. And the time I spent in the Python world, like I, I found Python, the tooling, like if I want to get a web app up fast, I can do that with Django and, and Flask. But like Elixir also kind of has that like Python feel to it. Like I can just spin up like a project super quick and like it doesn't make me think, you know?
2: I think that says something to the value of these tools to kind of get out of your way, right? And I think, you know, for a lot of people... Or at least, you know, for me, when I, you know, first saw Ruby, it was like, okay, I like I understand these words, like I, I understand how they get put together, and running a very basic Ruby script was trivial compared to you know some other things that were you know kind of harder to just get started on, and you know I think Elixir has exposed the power of the Erlang VM to people who were just like, well, that's hard to get started on. So here's a here's a here's a you know kind of a gateway, an on ramp to this world of now look at the power you have access to because we have made that initial abstraction more approachable.
1: Yeah, and I think tying this all all of this back together, I think so in, El- in Elixir land, we're fortunate we've got a maybe it's been a benevolent leader, but we have a, a very great community as well of people com- contributing to the language. And so I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, what if you were to take that college project and try to get to V1? Like, are there lessons you've learned from Elixir and from learning multiple different programming and spoken languages and asking questions and recapping problems? Like, how would you try to like, get that, ver- that project to like its version one if you wanted to like deploy like a new programming language? Wow, that's, that's a question. Let's see.
0: Too much I think, question? <laughs> no, I I think it's a good question, though. I would need to first define who it is I was building the language for. Uh, and, and I think, you know, of all the things I've been thinking about learning, it's like starting with that, like the most important thing about the code is before you write any code at all, it's like, who are you building the code for? So it's like, I think about that audience and it will probably be beginners to programming. And thinking about that audience, beginners to programming probably would like to see something visual, interactive, like immediately. Uh, and that kind of defines the scope of what types of like programs I want to transform into. So that tells me that maybe my source, my, my target, when I'm building a language, I'm compiling to something So I'm not going to compile to assembler or bytecode. I'm probably going to compile to like JavaScript so I can use web apps, you know, to quickly show people things. And I'm going to use web apps because everyone has a browser and can use that. So thinking about like who I'm building this for, it already tells me a lot about what I'm building. So now that I kind of know what I'm building, taking those principles of trying to break things down, I, I know I have something that needs to ask a series of questions and I need those series of questions to be transformed into JavaScript somehow. And I can go further with this, but that's sort of like the outline there. I'm thinking maybe uh, I need some idea of like what a node would be in this programming language. Most programming languages are based in in tree structures. Uh, So I, I maybe need to think about like, how do you combine questions with their answers together to get to some type of like greater structure there. I need to figure out what my means of abstraction are in my question-answer-based language. I need to figure out what my means of application is in this question-based language, and then I need to figure out how to translate that to JavaScript.
1: So you, let's say you're, you're you've reached beta status, or maybe v1, and you've got this kind of programming language that can ask a question and produce some javascript code and the wild community comes forward and says hey we think you should add i don't know i'm trying to think of a, an absurd feature that i can say that won't like you L- know start a flame war right right oh, maybe oh, wait, like, something outside of yeah, some yeah. abstract thing that's outside of the scope of like what your language is trying to do maybe css or something like how do you respond to that is that something you kind of swat away or like, how do you kind of address that kind of thing it, as you're crafting your programming language? I guess I haven't really
0: considered, like, how to deal with, like, what the community would want for said language versus what I would want for a language. I th- think that's a really hard question to think about. I, I think other language creators, like I'm thinking about um, Evan Zaplinski, the Creative Elm, uh, he kind of has been touted as, as like this dictator that doesn't allow like these extra features that everybody needs or wants for the language. And he's like, well, those features would make the language more complex. And I'm trying to build something very simple for beginners. And there's this tension between like his vision and like people using it. And I don't necessarily know like how to navigate that space. Uh, I think I would go about it in the way where I would encourage maybe the open source approach be like, If you all want said, you know, feature to this language, maybe I would chart out a path for it on how to add that. But like, I would be like, you can fork the project. Um, But you know, if it falls outside the concerns of sort of my focus and my user base of my ideal user, then I would probably have to maybe do something similar to what Evan does.
1: That's a good question. I haven't thought about that at all. I think we run into similar problems like say you've defined a behavior and someone wants to do some like very specific thing like they want to add another callback that does like something a little bit more granular than what you think the the behavior should actually do. Like I think that's the point where you start asking questions, you asking the why, trying to recap the the problem that's being expressed and say, "All right, maybe this is maybe this is already solved with the callbacks we have here." Or maybe this is, maybe we do add it, or maybe we just create like a separate, maybe it's a separate concern, like a separate behavior or something. I would imagine that would work similarly in, in the context of like a programming language or any application that you're kind of building. Yeah, I guess now thinking about
0: Elixir, you know, Jose kind of handles most of these type of requests because he's given the language users the same capabilities as the language implementers with macros. So most things can just be like, well, yeah, sure. Macro. Like I was at ElixirCon and we were talking about, Hey, how can we add types into like Elixir? And I just remembered there's this racket paper that it uses macros to add in a type system. It's called turnstile. And I was like, wait, I can do that in Elixir. So I, I dumped the kernel out of Elixir and just started like building up uh, my own version of def that was typed and took like colons for types and everything. And I abandoned said project when I found out that someone else built out a much further along version of it. Uh, I believe Quinn is their name, but that was really cool. It's just like, I don't need
1: to ask Jose to add in types. I can add in types myself. <laughs> Right, I remember seeing some of that work on Twitter. I'm going to have to do some Googling on turnstile because types of turnstiles turns up different types of turnstile results in Google. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I believe the
0: the paper's called... naming um, things is hard. Type systems as macros turnstile. And then they have a follow-up paper, type systems as macros, using like dependent types, though. Dependent types using macros, so you can really do some wild things with just macros.
2: I think that's the one of the great things here about you know working on things that are being developed in the open that you have access to all of it is that you can you can push and you can see and you can poke and you know if you if you are the curious mind that. You know, I was working on these things. There's really no end to to how deep, <laughs> how far into the particulars you can go, which is one of the things that I think has been exciting about this season and these conversations. To really, you know, kind of go below the surface of of what it is we're working on. Something I did want to add to the conversation we were just talking about was this concept of you know the kind of the expansion of an abstraction. And I, I think, in a way, it kind of relates to like the idea of you know, kind of taking on taking on tech debt. And I was having a conversation the other day in that vein about how you know, any anything you write, eventually you're going to get to a point where it's not enough, and you have to modify it or expand it or change it in some way. Um, and then an interesting kind of corollary to that is like, hey, can we just create some tech credit? You know, is there something that we can do to write it? now, define the abstraction so well now that we can at least put off some of that a little bit further. And I think that's it's an interesting way to think about it, and it's an interesting challenge to have when you're doing your abstraction of like how much can I future-proof this? But I also know that it's like a dangerous slope to head down, because if you plan for the future too much, often uh, your product doesn't get far enough to even get to experience it.
0: So, very interesting um, thoughts along those lines. Sussman recently he's like the author of SICP. He came out with another book and he's talking about like software design for flexibility. And he talks about like the idea of like building out DSLs actually allows for that, like flexibility you're kind of describing. And there's this other like thing in compiler construction uh, where people actually start off like they're like, oh, we can we need to build up this giant compiler. Someone got an idea of instead of building up this giant compiler that essentially does a bunch of different things, they can actually build out very, very small compilers that connect to each other. So you actually have languages that end up passing up through languages um, that do very small transformations. Now, Sussman and his like, like software design for flexibility, he kind of takes a similar approach was like, well, if you start with a DSL and then you realize you need to expand that DSL. Just writing on the DSL.
1: And a- another kind of point that I was thinking about, just as all these kind of thoughts are kind of bubbling together, is I- I've learned some lessons from Elixir that when I work in other languages, I find a little bit frustrating that, that they don't have the same kind of discipline, I think. So, you know, Elixir being a functional programming language and like a, um, I would say a modern one, you know, is only just across its 10 year anniversary it tends to be more consistent than some we'll call older or legacy languages. So, and then just the example that I, that comes to mind is like order of arguments. So, because Elixir allows you to pipe functions together, a lot of times within a module, uh, you'll try to get, you know, the, your kind of primary argument or your first argument should be consistent across that module's functions so that they can be piped together like, you know, Like the enum module is the greatest example of this. Like, it always accepts some form of enumerable, and then accepts maybe an extra argument or two, and then some options at the end, uh, or maybe a function at the end. So that type of like attention to like design and like ease of use for the end user. And when you think about like who's who's this language gonna be for? Like, is this for like someone learning languages for the first time, or someone who's working on a day to day basis? I think. Those kind of considerations can make a huge, huge impact.
2: Know your audience, ask a lot of questions, know your audience better, define your abstraction. Exactly. I love
1: it. I love
2: it. Every, you just do those. Everyone's gonna be such a better programmer for having listened to
1: this conversation. And if you need to say no, either say it gently or say not right now. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's how you keep things from getting out of control sometimes. <laughs> like maybe later. Cool. So I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I think I found the link to the turnstile. I don't know if I call this a white paper, blog entry. Uh, I found a link to the turnstile stuff, so we'll have that in our show notes. And as we're wrapping up here, do you have any final plugs, side projects you want to uh, get attention on, or hiring, or anything else you want to mention here at the end?
0: I can't think of anything right now. I guess I started blogging at uh, blackoiler.com. The site is still in the works. (laughs) Uh, But that's about it. I I guess I talk about some of these ideas there, middle-out programming, language-oriented programming, macros,
1: DSLs, you know. All right, so we've got some some reading homework, (laughs) Elixir Wizards audience. All right, so we're going to hit up that website and be reading those articles. It's been so fun talking to you today about crafting programming languages, DSLs, abstractions, math even, so... That's it for today's episode of the Elixir Wizards podcast. Thanks to our guest, Chris Miller, for joining us. I'm Owen Bickford, and my co-host is Dan Ivovich. Elixir Wizards is brought to you by Smart Logic, with production support from Hanger Studios. Here at Smart Logic, we build custom web and mobile software. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Flutter, and more. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Those reviews help us reach new listeners. So you can find us on Twitter at SmartLogic or join the Elixir Wizards Discord. We'll have the link in the podcast page. We will see you next time for more on Parsing the Particulars.